Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Enoch, which he names after his son. Take note of that. We'll look at that in just a moment in chapter 11. Uh, And then that city we said last time, the basic theme is that even though the wicked are going to continue on the earth, uh, they are specifically marked out by two sins. Uh, the seed of the serpent can always be identified by violence. First thing, think about Lamech, right? Killing the young man for wounding him. And the second one, sexual immorality of some sort, okay? Um, Lamech is the first to take two wives. Uh, and then in chapter 6, we see the sons of God and the daughters of men intermarrying with each other, Okay? Uh, and also the violence that's filled the earth up to that point. The flood comes to restart everything, uh, but we said it doesn't get rid of the true problem, which is man's heart. It gives him a new place in nature, but not a new nature. Uh, The ultimate problem and the reason that the seed of the woman is unable to take dominion is because they don't want to. Uh, They don't have the will to do so. Uh, And the people who do have the will uh, aren't interested in dominion and building a house for everyone to dwell in together in peace, they're interested in domination, taking over, ruling with an iron fist, having their own sinful desires fulfilled. Um, And so that's where we left off last time. We saw the Tower of Babel in chapter 11 as kind of the the apex of this. We've seen Cain and his descendants go found a city. Now after the flood, uh, Ham and his descendants, the new Cainites, okay, uh, later on the Canaanites, uh, they also... Uh, go and found a city, Babel, and build a tower there. So that pattern is repetitive, and all the basic themes have been set up. So what we're going to look at today um, in our continuation of our uh, survey, which has become no longer a survey, uh, but just kind of a slow walk through Genesis, uh, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to pick up this study at some point in the future uh, and just keep walking through. That's kind of the long-term plan, I suppose. Uh, So here's all the basic themes. If you want a good summary of what's going on now and then where we're going, um, the wicked seek domination through violence and sexual immorality. The perpetual temptation now, because of course we're about to get into the story of Abraham. The perpetual temptation now that we're going to see uh, is that the seed of the woman, uh, the righteous, are going to attempt to use the means of the wicked in order to gain dominion. Uh, and that never, ever works, okay? We cannot uh, just beat the wicked at their own game, okay? Uh, It will always turn out badly when we try to do so. Uh, And we see that most clearly in the story of Abraham and even at the very beginning of the story. Okay, so center in your mind. You can go to Genesis chapter 11, and we'll look right at the end of chapter 11, um, starting off this morning. We see a judgment that leads to uh, some chaos, Think about the ways that the Tower of Babel uh, is like the flood. You have, instead of waters uh, going out over the earth in judgment to all over the face of the earth uh, in a cataclysmic judgment, you have people scattered all over the face of the earth. There's a confusion of languages that happens um, afterward as well. So it's kind of uh, a parallel with the flood. And after the flood, we know that Noah comes up as our one who is going to pass on the seed of Seth. 
the seed of the woman, the righteous seed. Well, in the exact same way, look at chapter 11, verse 27. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Okay? Just after a judgment, Noah and three sons. Now another uh, flood-like judgment in Babel. And now a new righteous man with three sons. Okay? Uh, and we're told Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no ch uh, child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Okay, notice the parallels uh, that are being set up here. Uh, what we're going to see now from this point forward, from chapters 4 to 11, we've been seeing the domination of the wicked. Okay? It's the negative examples. Here's how you don't take dominion. Okay? Here's a, a sure way to get yourself judged, violence and sexual immorality. Okay? Now we're seeing the righteous. And notice the first thing that they do. Uh, Terah moves to a city after a son dies, names that city after his son. Okay, we've seen that before. That's exactly what um, Cain does. He moves to a city, names the city after his son. That's exactly what Nimrod does, names the city after his son. Okay. Um, we're seeing uh, that the righteous now are going to try to copy the exact battle plan of the wicked. They go into the city and name it after the sun, um, and it doesn't work. Notice what immediately happens, chapter 12, verse 1. Now, Yahweh said to Abraham, go from your country. Uh, we often think that Abraham, right, the way we associate Abraham, I'm sorry, Abraham and Abraham are going to get uh, all confused here, so just bear with me. Uh, we won't make it probably even to the name change, but I will say both. Uh, so, hold on. Um, uh, we often think of Abraham as the one that's called out of Ur, but notice that's not true, what we just read. Uh, his father actually starts journeying toward Canaan even before Abram does. Abram, so then what is he called out of? Uh, this can be kind of surprising to us. Um, Abram is called out of a city that's supposed to be the first righteous dwelling. Okay. Just like the wicked go and dwell in Shinar, it's the exact same word, uh, Yashab in Hebrew. Genesis 4, 6, Cain dwells in the land of Nod and founds the city Enoch. In chapter 11, verse 2, those at Shinar dwell there and found the city of Babel. Okay. It looks like Terah's going out to now found the first righteous city. Okay. Who wouldn't want to be there? Right? This is where all the good guys are. And notice what the Lord does. First thing, this is great leave. Okay? Leave the righteous city that's been established. Doesn't seem like that's how that would work out. All right? uh, so what's going on there? There's a kind of inborn critique here of what we usually, you know, we often as Christians and specifically in our circles think we're called to in some way found a sort of parallel culture uh, alongside the one that already exists. 
if we could just do you know, economics and art and all these other things uh, alongside the society that already exists and establish our own city of righteousness um, and just kind of ignore the cities of the wicked, uh, that's how we're going to be established. That's how we're going to take dominion. Um, we'll just eventually get so big and overgrow everybody else. Uh, that is the exact opposite of what we read here in this passage. Abram founds, Abram's father founds a righteous city, and then immediately his oldest son is called out of it to go into the place of wickedness, to go into Canaan, right? If reform is going to happen, we learn first, if dominion is going to take over, if we are going to build the house of God, that house will have to be built uh, not alongside of the house of the wicked, but from within it, from inside it, okay? Reform happens from the inside out. Uh, Abram is sent from the city of God and the city of man, not away from it. Okay? Separatism because of impatience and apparent unfruitfulness is never a strategy for culture building. Uh, faithful presence is much preferred, as we see in the Abraham story. Uh, and it's funny, for people who have, you know, sometimes we think of ourselves as the people with the optimistic eschatology, but as soon as things don't start going our way, what do we do? Throw it into the garbage can of history, right? Go do something else, okay? Instead of faithfully dwelling like Abraham for 400 years, right, and his family, excuse me, dwells there for 400 years without seeing any fruit of what they're doing, uh, we have to be in this thing for the long haul, like Abram. Now the, Yahweh said to Abram, chapter 12, verse 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, and the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Uh, this is what the people at Babel were trying to do. They were trying to establish a great name for themselves on the earth. And what we see here is great names are bestowed and not grasped at. You, I will make you great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How is God going to undo the curse that's on uh, the descendants of the wicked? He's not going to do it uh, by us coming alongside of him and cursing along with him. Okay? We are not given that privilege. How do we undo the curse? How do we take dominion in the midst of the cities of the wicked? We do it uh, by being blessed men who become blessed people, a group of blessed people, who are then called to go and bless the world. The curse of Genesis 3 will only be undone by the blessing of Genesis 12. Here again is another lesson in dominion for us. God is going to establish his house through blessing, as he had done with Adam in the beginning. God, who we meet in the first chapter of Genesis, pronounces a sevenfold benediction over the creation, right? This is good, 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 very good. This is wonderful. Okay, everything that he makes. And he creates man, and the first thing that he does in chapter 1, verse 26, he created man in his image and blessed him. First thing that God does with his human creature. Uh, and then provides everything that he needs graciously for life and godliness in the garden. Adam, in return, is called to imitate his father by blessing him for his graciousness and being obedient to him. The foundation of the house that God is building is benediction. We see the same thing with Abraham here. Uh, he is not sent out to curse all the wicked nations around him. 
okay? That's what Lamech does. Lamech takes on himself the ability to curse those around him and ex execute any kind of punishment that he thinks is necessary for the wicked. Dominion comes through blessing in the face of being cursed. Here again, we take our hint of this from the angels. Think about uh, Jude, Jude 9. I know all of you have the book of Jude, that nice, easy book to interpret right in the forefront of your brain here. Uh, in Jude verse 9, we're told that even the angels do not issue blasphemous judgments against their enemies. Okay? They don't even take upon their lips uh, the curse that God will bring down. They say, Jude chapter 9, the Lord rebuke you. That's what Michael says to Satan. The Lord rebuke you. He doesn't take upon himself the ability to curse his enemies. Okay? Uh, so we shake the dust of our, off of our feet, not as a curse, but of evidence of a coming curse for the rejection of Christ, for the rejection of God, His Word. Um, and what's Abraham's response to all this? Okay. Uh, no, this is a, let me stay here and build this city. This is a great, righteous thing that we're doing. Uh, we're trying to you know, build a culture that's opposite uh, to the ones in the other cities that we see around us. Verse 4, so Abraham went as Yahweh had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai's wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. Uh, notice that word there. If anybody, you might have a footnote by that if you have a study Bible. Um, we think immediately, you know, Abraham is this rich uh, uh, sheik, right? He has a, a sheikdom out there. And he just got a bunch of servants and slaves as he was on his way out. It literally says the people that he made in Haran. The idea here is evangelistic. Okay? Think about what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. God preached the gospel to Abraham. Right? And what does Paul say there? Uh, what was the gospel preached to him? In you all the nations will be blessed. That's the good news. And so Abraham is leaving this city saying, come with me. Let's go and bless all the nations. These are the people who go along with Abraham to be the apostles and the missionaries uh, of this new city that God is going to found in the midst of Canaan, the most wicked place on the earth. When they came to the land of Canaan, end of chapter, uh, verse 5, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So we see the faithful obedience and the evangelistic efforts of Abram here. Uh, Lot is with him, and we can suppose something. Why does he take Lot? Um, he's something of an heir. There is kind of a father and son type relationship here. Uh, there's almost a leveret relationship. Remember that the uh, father of uh, Lot had passed away, Abraham's brother, and now he's taking the responsibility for Lot. Um, and Abraham doesn't have a son because Sarah's barren, so Lot... Looks like he's going to be the successor and the heir of this covenant, which we know how that story works out in the end. Um, but they come, first of all, to Shechem. Shechem. Uh, other stories in the Bible, you should be thinking immediately. Where does Shechem come up? What is Moses doing? Remember, context determines content. Okay? Uh, the people of Israel reading this for the first time would have known exactly what happens at Shechem. Right? Uh, think of other stories. In Genesis chapter 34... Uh, Simeon and Levi act very rashly at Shechem. Uh, their sister Dinah, uh, one of, uh, the, the sister of the 12 brothers of Israel, uh, is raped 
by Hamor. Uh, and then, you know, there's trickery involved. Uh, and Simeon and Levi say, sure, you can marry our sister if you are circumcised. Okay, and then they uh, circumcise themselves, all the men of the city of Shechem. And then uh, on the third day, when they're unable to fight back, uh, Simeon and Levi go in and kill all of the men of the city uh, in the deception there. And what we see later is that uh, apparently what's going on, they assume that their father's inept. He can't handle the situation. He's not doing anything about the, their sister's honor. But in chapter 37, they lose blessing for doing that, for overshooting the authority of their father, uh, even though it's for a righteous cause. So Shechem, it's a place of division. Family troubles happen there. In uh, chapter 49, this is where Joseph, excuse me, I'm sorry, chapter 37, this is where uh, Joseph is sold by his brothers to the Egyptians. Again, another family division at Shechem. In Deuteronomy 11, this is where that uh, Moses indicates that the idols of Canaanites are. Israel's supposed to destroy them, but they don't, and half of Israel goes into idolatry, a splitting. In Judges 7, uh, Gideon delivers Israel from the Midianites. Uh, Midian is the, one of the sons of Abram's second wife, Keturah. They're kind of like a half-brother to the Israelites, part of the family. And Gideon, the Israelite, has to go and defeat them because they've been oppressing Israel. Family divisions always happen at Shechem. Okay, that's what we should be imagining here. And notice the irony. Abraham, you're going to be a great nation. I'm going to send you out. You're going to found this city. And immediately he comes to the place where families are split. Okay, doesn't seem like how we would expect the story to go. And we know exactly what happens. The family is split at Shechem uh, in chapter 13 when Lot goes his own separate way uh, after the Egyptian sojourn. So let's keep reading on here. Uh, verse... 7, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he, there, uh, so he built there an altar to Yahweh who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on still toward going toward the Negev. Okay, again, he lands in another place, Bethel and Ai two places we're also familiar with. Okay? Ai is where uh, what happens for the first time. Israel loses a battle after they come out of Egypt. Why do they lose the battle? What happens? Uh, it's idolatry, right? Uh, it's they have stolen something. They have disobeyed the word of the Lord. And um, uh, because of that, we can't get into it. They lose the battle. Uh, so what's going on here? Shechem is a place of violence. Okay? It's a place of idolatry, which all through Scripture is spiritual adultery, right? We see here Abraham in the two places where the righteous in the future uh, are failing. They look like the seed of the serpent. They're doing the things that the wicked do in these places, brother fighting against brother, murdering each other. Uh, in Ai, idolatry is happening, and so Israel loses a battle. Um, what we're being told here, what Moses is trying to do is showing us uh, if we want to take dominion, we have to go to the places where the righteous have failed. And we have to instead, uh, in the place of violence, offer peace at Shechem. Uh, instead of being torn apart there, when Abram and Lot are dwelling in Shechem together, he says, you take the best part of the land if you want it. He doesn't withhold it for himself. He isn't greedy. 
He doesn't grasp at what Yahweh's promised him. He says, look, and we know the story in chapter 13, Lot lifts up his eyes and sees uh, the valley, which is like the garden of God, and says, I want the best part. And Abram says, you can have it. He's not greedy. He's not violent. And what does he do here at Ai? Instead of idolatry, instead of building a tower to the heavens and trying to be like God and saying, all right, God's promised me this, time to set up shop. He builds an altar, not a tower, okay, in the opposite of the wicked. If we're going to take dominion, we must learn from Abraham that in the places of violence, we're to be peacemakers, that in the places of idolatry, we set up altars for true worship. Now there was a famine in the land, verse 10. Uh, And Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai's wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Notice that uh, the first descendant of Ham, Egypt, what's Abraham know he's going to do? Uh, They're violent and they're immoral. They'll steal his wife. Okay, Um, So, Immediately after, after Abraham expresses his faith in Yahweh, his faith is tested by a fast. Just like Adam in the garden, uh, he's brought into this place of blessing and promise and told, don't eat this one thing. Okay? Uh, think of Noah after the flood, brought into the place of blessing and promise and then told, don't eat the blood of the animals. Uh, Israel goes into the promised land and they're told, don't eat these specific foods. Uh, Jesus in the wilderness, after he has received the, you are my son, uh, and you're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, he's sent into the wilderness to fast. Abraham, as soon as he expresses his faith, is under a fast. And he has to figure out a way to get around it. So, he uses a little bit of deception here. Okay? He goes down into Egypt and he says, tell them you're my sister. Uh, verse 13, say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Interesting word there, uh, lechak in Hebrew. It's a violent taking. Uh, It's more like he reached and grasped at Sarah and stole her, took her. Um, And there's all kinds of things being set up there for us. There's other word associations, but we've got to move on from this. Uh, so he takes her violently to his house, and for her sake he dwelt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Um, think about stories later in Genesis, because uh, we know what's going to happen to Pharaoh. Um, why is this a bad thing? Well, remember he says, say that I'm not your husband, I'm your brother. Okay? We know later in Genesis, uh, when Isaac goes to meet Rebekah, who does he have to deal with in order to... Uh, receive uh, Rebecca, Laban, the brother, okay? The brother in some sense. Uh, Bethuel remembers the father in that story. The brother is supposed to be the one that mediates these marital type relationships that are going on. Pharaoh ignores this paradigm completely. He just takes her, okay? If he's husband, he'll kill her. If he's brother, he'll just disrespect him, okay? And then he placates him. I'll give you all these animals and servants. Just don't worry about it. Verse 17, but Yahweh afflicted Pharaoh, the same word for the plagues that come down in Egypt later on, and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Pharaoh called Abram and said, 
what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt. He had his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negeb. And this is where we've covered chapter 13, really. This is where Abram and Lot, the division at Shechem. Lot goes into the good place that's well watered like the garden of God. So go over to chapter 14. Chapter 14. Uh, Abram does whatever he can to sustain the life of his own people. When he goes down into Egypt, he provides for them, even if it's through means of deception. Uh, and now, immediately what happens, chapter 14, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasser, Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, the king of Sodom. Uh, Adma, Shem, Shimeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, and all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is in the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Karanim, uh, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Imim in uh, big long name there. So, what's going on here? All right. Uh, Ultimately, we see Chedorlaomer, this evil king. He's a descendant, notice, of Elam. Elam is uh, the oldest son of Shem. And Abram is the youngest son of Eber, the youngest son of Shem. Uh, we have a story of the older and the younger here. Okay? That's always a constant theme through Genesis, right? The older will serve the younger. Uh, this is exactly the same scenario. And we know that when all these kings come in and they attack... They eventually uh, capture Lot. And so Abram, verse 13, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born into his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them even to Hobah, north of Damascus. All right, there's a couple of things that are clearly set up for us here in this passage. Uh, and it's, first of all, that Abram has this commando army, apparently, of these 318 men. Uh, who do these 318 men defeat in this passage? Cheddar Leomar, a guy who has ruled the entire region of Mesopotamia for 12 years, for 13 years, and the men who were with him. Abraham's special forces can take out whole imperial kingdoms, right? If he wanted the bread in Egypt, what could he have done? Taken it by force. If he wanted all of the land of Canaan that's promised to him, what could he have done? 318 men, plus all the other ones who were with them, taken it by force, and he doesn't. The only time he uses force is in defense of his family. So notice that, very clear. When afflicted and abused by the serpent, Abraham does not retaliate. He entrusts himself to Yahweh's care. He is, his endurance actually leads to enrichment. He gains land after this, after being patient. Uh, in Egypt, he is sent away with all kinds of spoils and goods because of this. 
we're reminded of what James tells us. The anger of man does not work the righteousness of God, right? Uh, Abraham could have at any moment said, God's promised me this land, time to take it, right? Uh, I've been called to have dominion over this land. 318 men, go out, win it for me, okay? Uh, Kill all in your sight. Do what you got to do. And instead, he sojourns like a regular pilgrim. Only time he uses force is when it's to defend those who need defense. Verse 17 now. We see what happens after this. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And notice that's where that story ends. Nothing is told. Another king comes out to meet him. But whatever happened with that uh, uh, king of Sodom who went out wasn't much. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. Hebrews later tells us, interprets this for us, uh, Melchizedek, his name literally means king of righteousness. Uh, He is a king, he's a priest, and so he has the symbols of the royal priesthood, bread and wine, right? Remember what Adam had to eat in the garden? We looked at in Genesis 1. There was grain plants and fruit trees, okay, bread and wine there, if he would use them appropriately. Now this Melchizedek figure comes out to offer the symbols of the royal priesthood to Abraham. Abraham is a royal priest, and he has given them to show that. He blessed him. There's the blessing again. Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. But the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons. I don't want your stuff. I want part of the family. Give me your persons, uh, but take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went and let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. All right. I have to move on for this because uh, we've got, only got a couple minutes left, and I want to look at chapter 15. Uh, Abram now is starting to get a little antsy. Okay? He's gone through this. He's not taking the promised land by force. He's being patient and faithful. Uh, he's under this fast that we've said. Uh, and like Adam, he is faith- uh, unlike Adam, excuse me, he's being faithful to that and not taking authority. Ver- chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. He would need to be told that. He's just had a huge battle with all these kings that are in the area. He's probably afraid. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh, Yahweh God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my house will be my heir. And behold... The word of Yahweh came to Abraham. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. By the way, that's not just a quantity statement, right? You're going to have a lot of kids. They're going to be like stars. Remember what we learned about stars in Genesis chapter 1. They're symbols and signs of rulers, okay? Your children will have dominion, he's being told. Uh, patience. 
you will have a son. Eliezer, this homeborn servant, is not going to be the guy. All right. So what happens? In order to confirm this promise, look at chapter 15, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Uh, the last time we've seen this in Genesis is with Adam, who's put into a deep sleep. What happens after Adam wakes up from that deep sleep? Eve is there, the one who's going to help him take dominion, okay? the one that's promised to him that Yahweh sees that he needs. What happens when Abram wakes up in chapter 16? Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. He's offered a sort of uh, anti-Eve. Okay? Uh, maybe this is what God meant. right? Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I should obtain children by her. Sarai's a new Eve offering a way to get dominion quickly. Right? Just take the fruit. Maybe this is what God meant. He wants us to have this. He gave it to us. Right? We've been given Hagar. Take Hagar. This is what he's supposed to do. This is the wife that you get after your deep sleep. And Abram says, sure, why not? Okay, and we know this is where Ishmael comes from. Uh, and notice what happens immediately after. All kinds of trouble begins. Why? Uh, Ishmael and his mother are eventually cast out. There's all kinds of problems in the family and divisions because Abram has started to try to win dominion by the means of the wicked. This is not his wife. This is sexually immoral. Okay? Uh, and so this cannot be the way that dominion is going to be taken. When Abram, verse 17, chapter 17, excuse me, was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that you may... Uh, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you, I will give you uh, and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan uh, uh, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Abram said, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you through your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Immediately for, uh, in retribution almost, for Abram trying to win dominion through his male, masculine power. I can have any wife I want. I'm going to have a son. Okay. Uh, it's going to be through Hagar. She's offered it. Sounds like a good plan. Maybe this is what God means. Uh, instead of trusting in that ability, God now says, trust me. Okay. In fact, you are going to bear in your body a sign not to trust your masculine strength. Okay. Uh, you are not going to take dominion by your sheer raw power. Okay, that you have as a man. That is not how it's going to come about. Just like he doesn't use violence, Abraham is not going to use sexual immorality either. Uh, this will come by promise, and he has to be patient. That's what the whole sign of circumcision means. Of course, we know that later in Scripture, uh, we don't have signs like this. Circumcision is done away with. Um, but we do have sacraments, which replace those, right, that are the fulfillment of all those um, uh, think about the whole rest of the Old Testament. Israel is always given signs 
that dominion can't be taken by their own means. Think about the whole book of Leviticus. If you want to get back into God's presence, what do you got to do? Something's got to be bloody and cut off, right? An animal, okay? Uh, if you want to have fellowship with God, something has to die. If you're unclean, if you've come into contact with death somehow, what do you have to do? You have to wash. You have to go through a baptismal ritual. Uh, what's the whole point of it? It's so you can come to the festival meetings at the end of Leviticus. That's how dominion is taken. Dominion is taken through trusting in the signs that God has given to us, that it will be given to us, that we don't have to take it by force or by our own strength. What we see here, we eat every week of a table of a martyred man, right, who didn't trust his own power but laid his life down even to death and then became the heir of all creation because of it. He could have called legions of angels, you know the old song, right, to come down and fight against all of humanity and establish his will on the earth. And instead he does it by dying. Instead he does it by, as Paul says in Colossians 2, the circumcision of Christ on the cross, cutting off all of his strength. How do we get back into God's presence and be clean from all of our evils? Well, we remember our baptisms. A little bit of water and a little bit of bread and wine okay, is how dominion is taken. Not through uh, our own strength and our own pride and our own abilities. Not through remaining in our little huts uh, with our uh, little righteous family, but by going out into the world as Abram does. Establishing a city of God in the center of the cities of man. All the way at the end of Abram's life. Go to the end uh, of the book. And of course, this is tested again, right? Uh, he's even given the son of promise, Isaac... And then uh, take Isaac, kill him. Right? Uh, I've given you the promise. How much do you trust that I'm still able to do this? Okay? The first time he tried to get a son by his own means, now he's going to be tempted to keep a son by his own means. And instead, he's willing to give that son away because he trusts that, Hebrews 11:19 tells us, God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. Okay? He tells the men, the boy and I will come back to you. Abram knows that his dominion is sure, and now he's proven that because he knows that he will have dominion through his sons, even if it means that it's going to come through death and resurrection first. Okay? Even if there has to be death before dominion, he knows that it's his. At the very end of Abram's life, what do we see him doing? Chapter 24, he needs a place to bury Sarai. He's sojourning in the land of Canaan. All right, take those 318 men, get you a plot of ground for your wife. It's not what he does. He goes to Abimelech and pays for land that's already been promised to him for his eternal possession. He's not willing to take it by force, and instead he's willing to even hurt himself and his financial stability in order to have a place in the land that already belongs to him. Uh, and then finally, he dies. The story of Isaac picks up. But that's all we're going to have time for in this Sunday school, unfortunately. So here's a big summary of what we've seen okay, from Abraham and everything else. Uh, dominion, first of all, okay, it is incarnational and not imperial. Right? We're called to go out and into the centers of wickedness. 
Uh, we're not called to sit on the outskirts in our own little towns and lob Christian bombs over the walls. We are to set a table in the midst of our enemies and invite them to join us. Dominion is bestowed as a gift on the patient, the obedient, and the afflicted, and not the dominant, the violent, and the idolatrous. Dominion is a house built not on the foundation of anger, pride, exaltation, castle building, but blessing outsiders. Notice who were the friends of Abram were all through this passage, Amorites, people that he would give money and assistance to who were technically his enemies that would let him live in their homes. Enduring persecution with joyful faith and assisting our families. Maturing from failures and temptations, as we see Abram do, and inviting others to join in the grace of Christ, who is the cornerstone of this house, as we've talked about in the sacraments, uh, the new signs. Dominion comes through proper worship around word and sacrament, which teaches us to rule uh, by those signs. Uh, death and new life, laying down our life for the world. Okay? That's how dominion is established. That's how the house of God is built. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.